Jonathan, hello. Jonathan wasn't paying attention, so I'll introduce Book Club. Get in Book Club, we're doing indistractable nut that by can go, that, that can go on the end of year bloopers out real. No, it? that's staying in, Johnny. Me sat there in a completely different universe as the clipboard uh, kicks in for the episode. So we're on the, the, the last stretch of this book, where we're, we're shortening it to three discussion shows and one interview with the author. Um... And the last part of the book is part five, which is making workplaces indistractable, and I think part six, which is... Something about your kids or something? Making your kids and your family indistractable or something. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is, you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is, tell everyone about Book Club. Um, so, indistractable workplaces, it, I think there's a really interesting point here where they talk about, or he talks about, the modern workplace is a constant always source of on. destruction. He yes. says, today's always on work environment. Um, and there's some really interesting little snippets here. As we learned in part one, distractions originate from a need to escape psychological comfort. So what is making the modern employee so uncomfortable? There is mounting evidence that some organisations make their employees feel a great deal of pain. In fact, a 2006 meta-analysis by Dr. Stephen Stansfield and Bridget Candy, the University of London, found that a certain kind of work environment can actually cause clinical depression. I'm surprised if people are surprised by that. I wasn't. Are you not? No. So do you not think work... So, so I mean, we look at it from the context of, of our clients and the IT industry. Now, let's be clear. I think the IT industry is probably, you know, if there was some way of measuring the industries against each other less likely to cause depression than working uh, in, in more, the care sector. In a more buoyant environment. Oh, oh in the care sector. I bet, I bet, there's, yeah. I bet you, there's a greater likelihood you're going to be depressed in the care sector. So, no, Absolutely. And the point they're making is, because we turn to our devices to escape discomfort, we often reach for our tech tools to feel better when we experience lack of control. So the point he's making is some places are pretty depressing to work, and so people sit on Facebook all day. Yes, yeah. And LinkedIn. And allow themselves to be distracted because actually they're in a painful environment. Yes. And I do think you, you see, you think that a lot of the environments that we engage with aren't painful environments. I think we engage with some very painful and pleasant environments. You reckon? Yeah. I think some of the companies that we know of are unpleasant environments, not in a computer associates in the late nineties kind of way, but in a, it's just not a particularly great place to work here and everybody feels under pressure and everybody's knackered and overworked kind of way. Maybe. Maybe. It's interesting. He talks about um, how sometimes employees often feel unable to change the way things function. What do you make of that? Go on, what do you mean? So he says, employees often feel unable to change the way things function. How things that. work in the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I've got two thoughts on that. One... I can see why that would be a problem to an employee, particularly with Nears, sort of almost revolutionary way of looking at things. I'm only going to look at Slack twice a day. I can see a lot of managers been annoyed at that. Why are you on Slack? Yeah, yeah. I'm going I to messaged s- you a minute ago. I can, I can see that causing a lot of pain, I think. Why I think, have I not had a response? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I also think that if I said to my boss, listen, boss, I just don't go check emails during the day or answer my phone. I can see my boss getting a bit annoyed at that. Yeah, if you, well, you and I both said the other day, we were talking about it, the thought of working for someone else. Yeah, I wouldn't be happy with that. 
Um, the thought but, that working for somebody else who would say, no, you need to check your emails all the time and you need to be on, online but, all the time. There's a big but, which is if you were to take a massive tier one computer software company and you were to say, well, actually, I've come to work for your massive tier one computer software company. I've read this book called Indistractable. I'm an indistractable person, actually, and I'm not going to tow the company line. <laughs> the tier one software company would say two things. Do one. It'd say that a second. It would definitely say you've got to go, though. It would say, well, guess what? I've got a team of people who aren't indistractable. They're distractible. They all hit their targets. I suggest you should do what they do. I don't think those organisations are as directive as that. Don't you? No. I do. No, I don't think they are. So do you not think... They don't Do you not think working in one of the big sheds in Ireland... Oh, in a big shed in Ireland, if I work for Oracle or LinkedIn or wherever... Oh, the biggest computer companies in the world. Yeah, or Microsoft, and I work as like one of those pseudo field salespeople that's actually an inside salesperson, battery chicken... So, so the biggest computer companies in the world? Yeah. How many of those people in there can, can deploy indistractable? None. I would imagine very few. How many are going to sit with a leeway? How many are going to sit with a crown on their head? None. But they're all and so why? desperate to... And oh, it's why, great we work for LinkedIn. And why would the chief executive of any of those companies change it? They're the biggest software companies in the world. So it well, would be, it would be it's, interesting it's to about get, a very different fundamental would, pact between employer and employee. It would be interesting to get Benioff on the show. Because actually the pact over there, for example, in Dublin Correct. is your economy was nothing till we turned up here. Now your economy is something. But if we weren't here, you'd all be screwed. And actually, look, you get to work for Microsoft. Correct, yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it, I think? Uh, uh, he says here, actually, he says tech overuse is the symptom of company dysfunction. Yes. I do think that's the case. Well, he, there's a really great little graphic here. Oh, I see. I've not seen the graphics. I'll people here are always moment. connected, which reduces control over people's time, which means that to get ahead, I need to be always available, which increases the expectations to be always on, which means people here are always connected. And it becomes a vicious cycle of responsiveness. Mm-hmm. Do you remember, when, uh, and, and yeah, I don't know if Chris listens to this show. Chris is retired now, Chris Spencer. Um, he was the CEO of Emis Group PLC. Chris used to create an always-on culture. And when I worked for Chris... Yeah, but he used to time his emails to go out at midnight. No, he didn't. He used to work through the night. Chris is one of those, yeah, yeah, Chris is one of those people in life that doesn't need to kip. Um, and he kips four hours a day like some crazy guy, or he did... Like Margaret had, Thatcher. Yes, he kipped four hours a day, and he, worked, he was very comfortable working 20 hours a day. Um, and in the days of Blackberry, you could not keep up. And it just near, damn near killed everybody. But for the fact that he was such an inspiring, likeable guy. Right. That you sort of kept up with his pace. But that was a very, very... Actually, if you looked at it now, he just created a pace that was unbelievable. Of just email after email. What's this? What's that? What's this? What's that? What's this? What's that? What's this? What's that? And you'd go to bed at midnight thinking I'm on top of my email, and you'd get up at five in the morning and you'd be a hundred emails behind. God, that must have been debilitating. It was just horrendous. He ended up rich because of it though, didn't he? Yeah, made millions. Chapter 27. So how dysfunctional a culture was it? Well, exactly. That's my point about, that I was making a minute so ago. So the point you're making is, how dysfunctional are these cultures? Somebody's rich. Well, they can't be that dysfunctional, can they? No. Chapter 27. Fit. Fixing distraction is a test of company culture. 
Now, I must say, I wrote in this bit, yawn, yawn, yawn. <laughs> he says, he, and he talks, what's interesting is, this maybe is an American culture thing, and we're going to have to ask Nir about it. He said, what a company should do is, they should give everybody one night off a week. Really? So, what, in America, does everybody work 24 hours a day? Is that how it works? I think in a lot of environments, people do, Mike. You reckon? Yeah. But that's, what's interesting is, and that's, it's alien to me and you because we don't, though. because you, we're strong enough to turn our kit off. But it's not so much that, it's more the fact is that we serve the client. So actually, what happens very often with my clients is, I've had it recently actually where, for whatever yeah, reason... you and I don't two, report two, to anybody but our customers. Yeah, exactly. But for two Fridays running, for whatever reason, I've had to make a call at eight o'clock. This last Friday, the Friday before. And uh, in both instances, both clients, different people have both said, Oh, Mike, I'm really sorry to speak to you now. So it's all right. I knew it was going to happen. It's fine. No worries. But actually, the clients are sort of respectful of this post six o'clock thing. And I suspect our clients' clients, being human beings, are respectful of this post six o'clock thing. I think US culture is not as respectful. That's my point. Yeah, I've got, you know, I've got a couple of clients at the moment that are in America and I use Calendly as an app for scheduling. Yeah. If I give a client in America my Calendly link, and let's just say I left the hours of 6 till 9pm on a Friday open for potential scheduling, it wouldn't cross their mind to not pick those times. Must be an American thing, I guess. It just wouldn't cross... At no point would the customer look at it and think, oh, I'm not ringing Johnny then. That's out of order. Because well, the, the guy's going to be working at 8 o'clock on a Friday night. wouldn't cross their mind. Because I don't think an English client would put a call... I'm sure an English client wouldn't put a call in my diary at 8. It happens these last two Fridays, like I say, I have done, but it was for a pretty specific reason. Anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, they, he's put here a really interesting point. Companies consistently confuse the disease of bad culture with symptoms like tech overuse and high employee turnover. But actually, his point is, he said, it's just culture. Mm-hmm. And that culture is created by, by, in reality, leaders. And then they talk a little bit about what they call psychological safety. Well, I, I underlined that psychological safety. I thought it was safety. really interesting, the ability to be able to actually speak out and say what's concerning and bothering. I believe that you can speak up, yeah. And how in that how much of an impact that? Well, you're not has. concerned about looking like a Wally. Individuals and teams with higher psychological safety are less likely to leave Google. They're more likely to harness the power of diverse ideas from their teammates. They bring in more revenue, and they're rated as effective twice as often by executives. And then he talks about how you can create psychological safety. Yeah, I mean, how often do we meet candidates? Why are you looking for a job? Oh, well, this happening and that happening, and it's really pissing me off. Well, why don't you go to your boss and talk about it? And they look at you like. I have this conversation with a lot of people. I think they're very surprised that I say it with candidates. I'll say, they'll say, I don't like this about my employer. I'll say, have you spoke to your employer? They'll say, no. I say, well, I really think you ought to speak to your employer. And they just look at you like, are you mental? And you and I are a bit like, well, just go and tell them, confront them. And I'll tell you why I do it is. Because you want to know to that do. they've done it before they start hitting the market. Before they start hitting the market, then they take a counter off when the boss fixes it. But it's amazing. But I would think one in 10 have that conversation with their employers. I would have thought. Chapter 28. Indistractable workplace. Slack. He starts picking on Slack. Uh, he doesn't pick on them. He, he uses Slack actually as an exemplar of the fact that whilst they eat their own dog food, they're also very clear to him. Oh, he does, yes. He does say that. He says Slack is bad other than, other than Slack who use it well. Yeah. The, the, the point is that actually Slack are exemplars of how to use a technology like Slack. Yes, they are, yeah. And yeah. They don't let it own them. And that they actually... As he points out, Slack has a do not disturb feature built into the service that users can turn to whenever they want to concentrate on what they really want to do. And I think that's a really good point, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. The do not disturb button. Just turn it on, turn it off. Well, I should log out of it, actually. 
I'll, I'll look out at teams. Well, one of the things I think people don't realise, for example, with teams, for example, you don't probably realise it is, you can set teams so that you can say, I don't want anything apart from, like in the same way that my phone has got a setting now, that the only person who can get through to me is like my dad. About rugby. <laughs> he wanted to know about the season tickets. My dad and a couple of other people. Yeah. You can do the same with Slack messages, and I'm sure, and with, with Teams, where you can say, right, the only people who can get through to me on Teams right now is Pricey. I, I didn't know you could do that. I'd switch you off. Yeah. And then I know, right, if Pricey wants me, it's urgent. Yeah, I'd switch you off. So it's about that cultural thing, and I think that's the point he's saying is, actually, you don't have to do, sit there all day. You know, his point is saying that Slack, there's a channel for everything. With a channel for people who want to go to lunch together, a channel for sharing pet photos, even a Star Wars channel. These separate channels not only save others from the sort of off-topic conversations that clog up email and make in-person meetings unbearable, they give people a safe place to send feedback. Now then, part six. How do, you, about, how do you get on with this, raising indestructible children? Well, I whined about it. This is what I put. I put. So is I, this... So let's start... Let's look at it a different way. He's written... The last 40-odd pages of the book is about raising indistractable children and having an indistractable relationship. Yes. Is this an important and relevant thing to talk about in relation to our audience? Yes or no? Yeah. Why? Because I think if you actually read the book, if you have an indistractable family, then they're not going to distract you. Okay. So, so, you're, so, so we're talking about triggers. So the only two people that can get through to you are your dad and your wife. Fair enough. Uh, or when your phone's on D&D, but it distracted you. It did. Now, if your dad was indistractable himself, he wouldn't have called you. But no, that's, he's 84. But that's sort of a point about raising indistractable kids. Yes, I want indistractable kids that are like Mary Poppins kids. They don't distract me. I leave me to do my thing. Well, I don't, actually. I actually quite like them. And I quite like the interaction. And I can tell you now... Well, he's not talking about that. What he's talking about are kids that can focus on stuff. Yes, and I've put here, I want my children's minds to drift and gather information. I want them to play, have fun and be happy, not have time boxes. He makes point here, right? In a rebuttal to the article that claimed children are on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades, Dr. Sarah Rose Kavanagh wrote in Psychology Today, the data the author chooses to present are cherry-picked, by which I mean she reviews only those studies that support her idea and ignores studies that suggest screen use is not associated with outcomes like depression and loneliness. Mm. Well, I've been a childline counsellor, Mike. Phones ain't helping. I can imagine. Um, I just, I, I think the phones, the problem is... That the problem the kids, is connected. They're connected. Well, it goes a bit deeper than that. And he makes a great point here, which is absolutely spot on, which is that we create this culture of children that, are completely helicoptered and controlled. Yes, I agree. Yeah. My, uh, my wife is an epic helicopter mum. A helicopter parent, as the uh, educational magazines call it. She has spent her whole life hovering over my daughter. Mm. And my daughter has spent her whole life going to organise this and organise that. And Sorry, actually, Jonathan, I just realised that, that my you've phone... been distracted. It's on flight mode, though. How so somebody you been distracted on message? flight mode? need to get your settings right. Clearly. So anyway, distraction this, distraction that, helicopter this, helicopter that. And the point he's making is, I know, for example, where do the kids get their autonomy? 
and their control. And I know we all hark back to this dark, this halcyon area. Well, we could all walk down the street when we were eight. Where, as kids at six years old, I used to ride 15 miles to into dark into the darkest inner cities to buy my drugs um, <laughs> or whatever. But I, I actually could, at six years old, ride to the chippy four miles away. Yeah, yeah, I did the same. And I did have shed loads of autonomy. And I used to get on the bike and go and play in the woods for hours and hours on end and walk around and get up to no good. And I carried a pocket knife um, because I was a Boy Scout. And actually, yeah, we've created a generation of kids that don't get that. So where do they get their autonomy? They get it online. And that's the point he's making. Yes, yes, I do agree with that. They get their autonomy online. They get their sense of control over their own lives, their sense of agency they get online because we don't give them it. Yes. Because we don't let them out of the house. We don't let them walk down the street on their own. That's the reality, isn't it? You're absolutely right, 100%. We've we've helicoptered these poor kids to death. So is it the tech? No. The tech is there for them to find a place where they can be in control. They've got to have an outlet, and that's their outlet. Be in control, be artistic. So that's his point, is he's making about indistractable kids. And I get that. And I think it's spot on. And, you know, where can they meet people? And also, there's a, and he also points out there's a force for good here. You know, if you're a slightly different kid, uh, you, you can actually meet people who are different in the same way as you much more easily online. Mm-hmm. But he's saying that, you know, we can't blame the whole thing on the kit. It's not just the kit, is it? It's a combined thing. We helicopter them and then we give them these devices where they can leave us emotionally and psychologically. They can disappear. Yeah, you've covered that well, Jonathan. So I thought that was, a, I think, a fascinating topic. How useful it is to me to make me a better salesman in this instance, not so sure. But it might make me a slightly better parent, which in turn might make me a slightly better salesman. Correct, correct. Uh, make time for traction together. Yeah. What chapter is that? I actually wrote here. I wrote here. Internal triggers. Where I, are you? I wrote here, chapter thirty-one. Make time for traction together. I actually wrote this book is getting weak now and padded out as he's lost focus in the book. Was my thought? Actually, okay. Um, I just thought, why have you done this? Scheduling family meals is the single most important thing parents and kids can do together. Yeah, well, great. Children who eat regularly with their family show lower rates of drug use, depression, school problems, and eating disorders. Great. I take it for granted because we do a lot of eating together as a family. But, okay. Help them with their external triggers. This is an interesting when you're helping your kids with external triggers. I did actually write at the top. Um, I wrote, this is a bit all, all a bit rubbish, really. Yeah, I get it, but it's, it's just got into a little bit of saccharine sweet sickly sweet stuff for me that's what I was talking about about getting I, yeah. I said to you it got a bit sickly sweet so I mean I put I've here, got to page 240 I, 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 and I have I, lost a bit of heart I just cannot now. see making time for your kids wealth domain being something a normal kid's gonna do what do you mean well that's what the, one of the things he suggested you should do what making time for what he said you should sit down with your child and make time for your wealth domain and stuff I just thought I, I mean I agree with you I, I've actually put those words there so sickly sweet just so sickly sweet teach them to make their own pacts it's all great and everything and do you know what maybe I'm reading it through the bitter lens of somebody who didn't quite realise how harmful the kit was until he developed a very highly distracted teenage girl Um, but do you know what I think we do put too much onus on it and do you know what I think I look at my own child and think She's eminently capable of writing an essay for school. 
So mm. she's not that in, she's not that distractible. And you know she's got to turn her phone off. I, I completely, I completely agree. She's got to leave her phone in the kitchen for an hour. And that was sort of my, my point about this part going back to you know going back to going back to at the start, which is I just can't see me going through this with and, and considering that just no, no. chance. And then but he, that's a point about they they need to have creativity and learn stuff themselves. What's interesting is my eldest daughter's passed selection for a black belt grading, which is very difficult. She hasn't graded as a black belt yet, but she has passed it. She's only 10. And she's properly smashed it. And I talked to the trainer afterwards. And he said, gosh, she's done well, Phil. I said, yeah, the problem is she hasn't failed at any point yet. So a failure is going to be the biggest point. And I think because we cost at the kids so much, they never fail. So they never get used to we failing. We don't let them lose enough. We don't let them lose no, enough. We, don't. we just don't let them enter stuff that they're going to lose at. So we need to let them lose. Enough. Yeah, Correct. yeah. Yeah, and then he talks about spreading social antibodies amongst you fr- amongst friends. I did like this actually. Um, so, God, he, so, so this is the bit where he's talking about years ago you never let somebody smoke in your house. So right. Yeah. When I was a kid, right, this fellow used to come and sell insurance to us. He used to come every week to collect my dad's pension money in dirty cash, and because uh, it was how it went in those days. And he'd come and he'd pick up the money and he'd go back and he'd put put it into dad's pension, all that stuff, and. He was called Clive. And Clive, we're non-smokers of the Grahams. Right. My family don't smoke. There are no smokers amongst the Grahams. And Clive used to show up and smoke fags in our house incessantly and talk to my dad about cricket because they'd known each other for years. Right. And I remember every time he came, my mum used to just put an ashtray out for him and he used to smoke fags in my house. <laughs> and my parents just sat there and sucked it up. But actually over the years, it became more socially unacceptable to do so. Yes. And I think he's right. Now, if you think about it, he talks about this word, this, he's created this verb to thub, phone snub people. I think if actually... If someone gets that phone out, I'd say... Is everything okay? Yeah. Are you all right? I really like that. I thought it was smart. I that's spot yes. on. Yeah. Are you all right? In a... I didn't realise you were... Um, it's heart, very passive I, I, aggressive. I, I didn't realise you were a heart surgeon. Very passive aggressive. And that, and that your work was so important that you had to uh, bin me for your phone. So just to make sure people know what we're talking about. So me and you were talking, Johnny. We're having a beer. You get your phone out. Say, oh, is everything all right, Jonathan? Is everything okay? And you go, what do you mean, Mike? So, well, you seem to have picked your phone up whilst we were talking. Yeah. It must be really important. I really like that. I'm going to start doing that. See, I'm not at an age yet where my kids are going to sit around a dinner table when we're out with phones. Oh, I've got to tell you, mate. We're not there. That's so, a pet thing for me. Well, so we need to, does my nuts so, walk so in a restaurant, really, there's a family that's out there and the kids are all on their iPads. But the parents are as well. That does See, so, my nuts. So we're not there yet, predominantly because my kids aren't quite old enough. And I sort of talked to my wife a bit about this book and I said, I could tell you now, there's no way my kids are going to do that. But is that what every parent thinks and then it ends up happening anyway? Or do you let Isabel sit there on a, on a phone whilst, whilst you're out with dinner with her? Because I've got it in my head, I'm not going to well, do we it. Went, we've been out for dinner yesterday. She's not, she not looked at her phone during dinner. She talked to her parents. Fair enough. I think a year or two ago, she'd have sat and looked at her phone, but she's got older and matured a little bit, actually. She quite enjoys the time she spends with mum and dad. And and that's a phase thing. You give you give a 14-year-old girl a way of escaping dinner with her mum and dad, she's going to escape, mate. A 17-year-old girl's wise enough to know, do you know what? I don't do this very often. I don't get to spend this sort of time with mum and dad. I think I'm just going to hang out and put the phone on it so the turn the phone the other way for an hour. Just an hour. It's only an hour, isn't it? Because I mean, by the end of the hour, she's. Because what's mad about it is, honey's just got a phone so we can see where she is because she goes to this youth club. Some of her mates have got phones. Every day, they just rush in the house and pick up the phone straight away. 
And I read this book and Honey did it. And I said, what, what's, what, why are you hurrying? What's, what's up? She went, I'm going to check my phone. I said, what's going to happen? She said, I don't know. So why are you going to go and check it then? She went, I don't know really. But it's the don't know. Yeah. That is why we all check our phones. Oh, I wonder what's happened in the world. But none of it's important. Well, exactly. Chapter 35, be an indistractable lover. Lover. This is funny the way he writes it, actually. He says, I began to fondle her cell phone. <laughs> and, I, and he read it the way he'd written yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, it was very good. As, as an audiobook, it made very good listening, very funny listening. Funny, yeah, funny. He delivered it really, really well. But he goes on and tells this story about how, how he and his wife were in their beds on their laptops. I, I think that's an American thing. Must be. That must be an American thing. They were both in their beds on their computers doing Bad work. Bad sleep hygiene, that. Bad Just sleep hygiene. Bad. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is... You see, he's put here, we're connected to an internet router and monitors seven... He's saying, basically, he's put his router on a timer to turn off at night. That's no use to me. I just wouldn't... I just, well, I we just watch look, movies at night. Well, I'm just not and gonna, I stream the movies down the tinterweb. Well, I'm just not going to look at my laptop in bed. I'm not going to look at mine in bed. <laughs> That's a weird thing to do. But like you say, these second two parts, you know, it's part yeah. six and seven. I felt like it, it's, I almost feel like the publisher said, I just need another 4,000. No, I don't, I don't. I, do you know what I think? I think that was him trying to extend what he believed. And I, let's get it right. You know, the book. So we're at the end of the book now. We've finished. So I'll tell you what I think. Do you know what I think is great? Actually, there is a book club discussion guide. At the end Maybe of the he's going to do that at his kibbutz. Which yeah. is where he meets his friends. Yeah, uh, he's actually written a book club discussion guide. You know, for example, number 16, according to researchers, we need three psychological nutrients in order to flourish autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Which of these nutrients is most nutrients is most important to you and why? Which are you lacking? So I've not got that on the audiobook. It doesn't even... No, that's that. really good. Uh, I thought some of the extras on the book were great. Overall then, Pricey, thoughts? I think what... I think if you were to read this book, if you were a 21-year-old, just starting in the world of work... Extremely vulnerable. It's a 10. A 10. Straight 10. Personally, I felt that I'd do a lot of it anyway myself. So it, it would just lose loads of points for me. But not because I don't like the book, because I think the book is good. Because you know I'm not a notification person. I don't no, well, neither of us are, are we? Um, I think the last chapter is where he's getting into putting it into your personal life. I think... Didn't quite cut it through. Didn't, didn't do it for me. Should I buy the book? Would I say somebody should buy the book? Yeah, 100%. I think it's a good book. It's going to get a seven and a half for me. doesn't make my top five, though. Okay, my thoughts are very valuable book. Starting out in your career, 22, 23, 24, incredibly valuable. Brilliant, yeah, um, brilliant. Because that generation has no idea quite how distracting. Well, they're, be, they're being manipulated and, and not how knowing how much it. they've been manipulated and they don't quite realise quite how important their time is. And, you know, it's a funny one because I've realised, I was talking to Lily about this the other week, it's only as you get older the way you really brutally begin to value time. Yes. You know, at 23, you've got all the time in the world, haven't you? Yeah, of course you have, yeah. 47, four, time has taken on a whole new dimension of value to me in the last year or two. Yeah. Probably last three or four years, but particularly the last two couple of years, time has a value way beyond... What you think? Why have I wasted it watching some rubbish on TV? Rubbish on TV, flicking down it. Even just the thought of, I've just wasted a minute looking at Instagram, just time is brutally valuable to me now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like I'm running out of it theoretically. Hopefully, I've got about another forty years worth. But um, time matters, and I think that's a, a a great thought. The concept of how easy it is to be taken away from what's important. I do like how mo- it's very current as well. You can tell it's really a new current. And it, do you know what I think? If you've got any underperformer, if any candidate came to me and said, "I've got to be honest, Johnny, my last two three years of my career have been a bit shit. Um, I'm not happy." I just don't know what's going wrong. This would be in the list of books I'd give them to read. Because I bet if you took 10 underperformers... Yeah, it's a good book. I bet if you took 10 underperformers, 10 people who just weren't doing well at work, weren't doing well as salesmen, saleswomen, salespeople, sales professionals, and actually did a deep dive into their day-to-day activities and looked at what they did between the hours of 7am... 7 p.m. daily, you would notice they were distracted by shitloads of stuff all the time. And as he points out, the more pain you are in, the more distractible you become. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, there's no and doubt. I, it's a good and book. I do think that a lot of people, you know, you and I both know there are certain people that, that are on LinkedIn all the time or on social well, that, media. Well, that, it's pseudo work for them, isn't it? Which you co- yeah. pseudo, pseudo work. It's not real work. Because actually, it's easier to be distracted and go down a distraction hole that looks like work than it is to find a decision maker, blag a mobile phone number out of mm. a gatekeeper, and then call a guy on his mobile phone at five o'clock at night when he's driving home and make an exciting, compelling pitch as to why they ought to meet you. Because that's really hard work. What do you give out of 10 this book? I'd give it a seven. Seven's a pretty good mark, Mike. From you. You normally give everything a six. It's a good mark. I liked the book. I thought it was good. I'm going to give it a seven as well. I think it, it has a very... I'm surprised you gave it a seven. You seem to like it more than that. No, but it's like I say. If, if, if somebody rang me tomorrow and said, Johnny, I'm... You know, I get sometimes I get these calls where I can't... Somebody watched a pint with JG and they yes. watched a with you. Well, no, they, everybody thinks they know me now. <laughs> and they all think the worst thing about Pirate JG is everybody thinks I'm friendly, affable, <laughs> lovable. Wait, you wine on it, Why? I've never, <laughs> seen, I've never seen an episode of it, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> you and my wife. Um, Has she never watched one either? <laughs> That's funny. Isn't uh, it? Uh, friendly, uh, uh, and so as a result, I get these calls or I get these e- these messages on LinkedIn. Can we meet? Do you fancy a pint? Blah blah blah. And often it's people who are struggling and they want some advice. If somebody messaged me tomorrow and said I'm struggling, I want a bit of advice. If I met them for lunch and they said, what books should I be reading at the moment? I'd say, Indestructible Near Isle. Good, yeah. therefore it gets a seven. Fair play, good. And that, that, next time you see us on this show, we'll be interviewing Near Isle um, as part of the show, which I'm really excited about because he is an A-lister. In fact, we've got a couple of other A-listers coming up now. Do you know who else we've got? We've got David Allen, author of Getting Things Done on the next uh, I'm going to be interested in reading that because I read the first one and hated it. But I get the impression it's been updated a bit. It has, and he's pushing this getting things done workbook. So I'm going to be interested to read that. Yeah. So it, um, so I did not like the first one. And I think, it, well, you and I both know that the interview, you'll walk away from the interview and you'll go, right. Well, he's obviously I, a top I, I'm guy. I'm really into GTD now. Yeah, yeah. He's clearly a top guy, isn't he? Yeah. And there's a, there's and a reason. So there's him. We've got him and we've got some other real belters. Where, uh, we'll put them all up on the, on the website and on... Uh, LinkedIn. Cool. For everybody to see. And at that, thank you. Next time we see you, we'll be with Nirail. Bye-bye.